So you are the 25% that either already are dating somebody and have mastered dating 101 or you just don't care right now, which is great, you know, because Jesus says that the gate to heaven is narrow and the gate to destruction is broad. So here you are. All right. Very good. 25%. Oh, priest humor. All right. Okay. Let's begin with the prayer in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks for the gifts that you've bestowed upon us so far this weekend. And we just ask you to continue to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Help us to grow in knowledge, wisdom, and understanding of you. Help us to be able to just understand exactly that we, how much we belong to you and the mysteries that we celebrate. We ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so I love, love not only uh, talking about topics like this, but I also love any questions that you have that come off the top of your head. I saw some of the questions that some of you submitted uh, electronically, and so if I don't touch on that, raise your hand and say, hey, what about that question? And I'll make sure that I do. If something else pops up, uh, just ask me, okay? I used to do something called bother the father all the time, which meant that if there's anything that was on your mind that wanted to ask a priest, uh, I'm happy to kind of answer that question for you. So the first thing that I need, I need a volunteer. What's your name? What is it? Magali. Magali. Come on up. Will you come up? Come up here? Please. Come on up. And we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're walking, and we're walking. Very good. Okay. So let me see. How do you say your name again? Magali. Very good. So Magali, come up here real quick. Everybody welcome Magali one more time. Hey, all right, Magali. Okay, so let's jump right into it. Are you ready for this? Magali, are you saved? Yes. Yes, she says tentatively. Let's ask everybody in the room, all right? So well, are you a nice person? All right, there you go. She tries. She tries. Oh, very good. All right. Uh, do you like dogs? Okay, there you go. That's all you need to know. <laughs> Case closed here. All right. So let me ask you this question. Raise your hand if you think Magali is saved. That's a, hey, you pull really well. That's very good. Raise your hand if you think it is inconclusive at the moment. That's harsh. You are all haters. Trollers on Twitter and everything else. All right, now let me ask you this question. It's a loaded question, and hopefully it'll help clarify things a little bit. Magali, are you redeemed? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Did you say no? No. Yes. Yes. No. (laughs) Wait, you said yes? No. 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 No, you didn't. <laughs> Who's on first? No, I'm kidding. Okay, very good. Raise your hand if you think Magali is redeemed. Hey, that's a really good, that's a really good poll. All right. Who here, let me just, just raise your hand if you think you know the answer. What is the difference between the two? <laughs> you all just voted on her salvation. And now I'm asking you, well, can you clarify on your vote? You're like, well, don't, don't, don't ask me. 
What does it mean if we say that somebody is saved? What do you think if we say somebody is saved? If you are saved, you cannot go to hell ever. That's a great answer because you've, basically you've been saved from everlasting death, right? And now you live with God forever. What does it mean to be redeemed? It's kind of like a coupon. What am I, like a coupon? Like, what do you got, like Amazon gift card? I'm going to redeem that bad boy? Yes. So it gives you the ability to go to heaven, but you still have the possibility of going to hell. How? Why? Explain. Give me more info. I'm the boss man. Need the info. What do we got? So what, like, how are we as Christians, what do we believe that we say, like, we're redeemed? Omaha, shout it out. Go ahead. <laughs> so uh, to try to recap that real quick. So you've kind of done something bad, and that's not good, but because you've been redeemed, you're kind of saved. You're not completely saved, but you're kind of on your way, so you're good. I'm not sure that's the way the catechism defines redemption, but... but. Okay, backwards hat in the back. There you go. Stand up real quick so I can hear you. Okay, so when you say we're born into, uh, we're redeemed in Christ, what, is it, what does that mean? So what did Jesus do that redeems us? He died for us on the cross. Why did he have to do that? For our sins. So you and I are sinners, and sin cancels out the ability to go where? Heaven, right? So... We need somebody to pay the price for us to go to heaven or to redeem us, right? So we are all redeemed, Magali included. We are in the process of being saved. You and I will be saved when we walk through the gates of heaven. Because once you walk through those gates, there's no turning back. Does that make sense? So if somebody asks you, our Protestant brothers and sisters will say, are you saved? You say, I'm a work in progress. Right? I am redeemed 100% unconditionally. We know that Jesus loves us. He gives himself for us, but we still have free will. And I can still reject that love if I so choose. And why we come to conferences and retreats like this is to how to learn to come in the habit of saying yes more often than no. Does that make sense? Give it a hand to Magali for being redeemed. Woo! If it's any consolation uh, to Magali and to some of the rest of you, I taught uh, dogma at the seminary, and I would tease the seminarians this way too. So uh, one of them who's actually here, I said, Joey, are you redeemed? He's like, yes. And I just kind of stood there and looked at him. He's like, no, maybe, I'm not sure. I don't know what's happening right now. I said, are you having a stroke? Do you smell toast? What's happening? Okay, Okay, here we go. So what happens when we die? Uh, death puts an end to human life at the time open to either accepting or rejecting the divine grace manifested in Christ. The New Testament speaks of judgment primarily in its aspect of the final encounter with Christ and his second coming, but also repeatedly affirms that each will be rewarded immediately after death in accordance to his works and faith. So what does this mean? 
I hate to tell you all this, but it's a reality. St. Benedict says, keep death before you always. That we realize that our lives are fleeting. That Scripture even says our lives are only 70 years or 80 for those who are strong. And most of those are emptiness and pain. Whoever wrote that it was having a bad day that day. Most of them, 70 years, good grief. Emptiness and pain, Lord. Serenity now, right? So all of us realize that in the grand scheme of things, and, and here's, I'm going to geek out on you. I just watched this thing on Netflix called Black Hole Oblivion. If you want to have your brain explode, watch this thing. Anyway, it just says that it took 1.5 billion years for a gravitational wave to reach a black hole and finally hit the Earth in 2015. Those black holes have been there for 1.5 billion years. I've been here for 40 years, and I think that seems like a long time, right? But our lives are very brief when we think about all of eternity. And so that helps us to, re we should remind ourselves of that when we think about, oh, I have to make this little sacrifice. It's really difficult to choose what is good, what is true, what is beautiful once in a while. But if I remind myself that my life is short, it helps me to be able to choose and to do what I know Jesus is calling me to because I realize that my goal is on eternity, not on the short-term investment. Does that make sense? So when we die, we all have what we call the immediate judgment, your particular judgment. So particular just means that. It's particular to me. So if I walk out of here and I get struck by a bolt of lightning, guess what? I'm about to meet Jesus. Now, at the end of all time, Jesus is also going to come back. That's what we call the second coming, right? And that's where we say that there will be no more uh, confusion about Jesus. He's not going to sneak back into the world. He's going to come back, and there will be a final judgment of all of creation, of all of humanity. So here's a cool footnote for all of you. This is what one of my sister friends told me one time, like Sister Vale, not, you know, sister. She said, do you realize God's going to stop making people someday? Think about that for a second. God's going to stop making people someday. And you made the cut. So that means you're kind of special. That in God's omnipotent, omniscient plan for all of creation and the cosmos, you have a part in it. And someday, at the end of all time, there will be no more human beings. And so that means that you are that particularly special in God's grace, right? In God's mind. So we each have that dignity of, again, being created in God's image and likeness. And when we die, we get to meet God and we get to talk about uh, our life and how do we accept his grace in our life. What happens when we die? It says, the parable of the poor man Lazarus and the words of Christ on the cross of the good thief, as well as other New Testament texts, speak of a final destiny of the soul, a destiny which can be different for some and for others. So do you guys know what, uh, the, the story of Lazarus that they're talking about here? This isn't Lazarus, his friend who was dead, came back and then died again someday. But it's the friend, it's Lazarus who? The parable of Lazarus the, the poor man. Very good. And what does it say in that, what does Jesus say in that story, the parable? Correct? The rich man did not care for Lazarus, who was poor and was begging at his doorstep. It said it even had wounds that the dogs would lick. Lazarus dies, and where does Lazarus go? He goes to the bosom of Abraham, Jesus says. 
Right? And where does the rich man go? Hell. And how does Jesus describe that? He's very thirsty. Is that something? So if you think about it, when we talk about our relationship with God and we talk about heaven, what we're really talking about is that heaven is the fulfillment of all of your desires. Jesus says that it's perfect, right? The perfect fulfillment of all of your desires. That's when we use phrases like rest peace. We're not talking about them taking a nap. Boy, boy, she really was tired, wasn't she? Like everybody just exhausted her. I hope she gets to like rest in peace now. No, to be able to rest in peace means that I don't long for anything anymore. Every single desire has been fulfilled. It is, I don't know, like I think the closest I've ever come is like an all-inclusive resort. Oh, I can't take any more relaxation, right? You don't thirst. You don't hunger. You're not tired. You don't long for love. You don't long for identity. You don't long for popular. Like all of those things are satisfied. It's paradise for the soul. Right? That's why Jesus says, come to me, you who are thirsty. I will give you water. Come to me, you who labor and are burdened. I will give you rest. That is in the person of Jesus. That actually heaven at its core is a relationship. It's a perfect relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we are invited into. And because you and I have been built for communion, to be in relationship, to know that we are loved and to love in return, heaven is that perfect communion. This perfect life of the Trinity, this communion of life and love with the Virgin Mary, the angels, and all the blessed is called heaven. Heaven's the ultimate end and fulfillment of the deepest human longings, the state of supreme and definitive happiness. So if we talk about being in right relationship with one another, so if I talk about how I'm called to be in communion, another footnote, here's the meaning of life, okay? So you're like, well, the meaning of life, what the hell? Meaning of life, write this down or make a mental note. If you're taking a notes, this is the most important thing you can hear all day. The meaning of life is communion. The meaning of life is communion. Communion is to be one with another to know and to be known. Communion is the fruit of love. Sorry, yes. <laughs> yes, and I can repeat myself. The meaning of life is communion. Communion is the fruit of love. It's to know and to be known and to be in perfect relationship with the other. So one of the ways that we describe heaven and the relationship of all the people up there is the, what? Communion of saints. When you come to Mass, you come forward to receive communion. Wait, wait a second. Now it's starting to kind of click here, right? When we arrive at Mass, we realize that we are not perfectly suited for communion. So we say, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. It's been 24 hours. It's been a long day, Jesus. I need your grace, right? So heaven is for real. So what is purgatory then? Okay, well, if heaven is perfect, if heaven is perfect, if I went there right now, it would cease to exist because I am imperfect. Does that make sense? If you're looking at me, you're like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Father. You don't belong there. 
Calm down, people. No, heaven is perfect. And so if it's a perfect relationship of perfect harmony and fulfilled desire, I realize that I am not ready yet. And so how does God get us ready to be in perfect relationship? He must heal or the verb that the church uses, purge those things that don't belong. I know a lot of really, really good people. I've been blessed to know a lot of really good people in my life. I have yet to meet a perfect person in my life. That's what purgatory is. Purgatory is God's love, grace, and mercy preparing us for perfect communion. One of the disadvantages or one of the, the tragedies that we have in our society today is that we canonize people right away. I, as you can imagine, celebrate a lot of funerals. And a lot of people always, oh, Uncle John, he's already up there on the 18th fairway in heaven, right? And I'm like, where's that in Scripture anyway, you know? Like, and I golfed with that guy once. He's not on the fairway. Right? And I was like... <laughs> Nothing but fairway in heaven. There you go, right? So, no, that we need to be able to know that God's love purges and purifies our loved ones. And so that we believe that we are still united to the church in purgatory, that we can actually pray that people are able to be made perfect. And because heaven is a relationship with God, and purgatory is a state of relationship, and even hell is a state of relationship, you can experience them in part here and now in your life. Right? What does it mean? When you feel isolated and alone in your life, that's an experience of hell. That's what it is. If I make somebody feel isolated and alone in their life, I'm an agent of hell to that person. If I reach out and try to comfort the afflicted, those that have been lost, if I go out and try to you know, be a, a soothing balm in the world, then become an agent of heaven. Which do you think Jesus calls us to be, right? That's why we actually go to confession, because I realize that in my own life, I have sought out selfish desire. I haven't been concerned about the good of the other. I've only been concerned about myself. And in doing so, sometimes I have been an agent, not of heaven, not of grace, but of sin, of darkness, and actually of hell to others. That we talk about in our spiritual lives, we talk about virtue. Virtue is your habit. That you and I are either becoming more virtuous or vicious in our lives. There's no in between. You're not staying static. That we either become more and more agents of the good, the true, and the beautiful, or we're turning away from it. Right? Now, all this, everything that I'm saying, remember that this is in the context of you are loved unconditionally by God. You are redeemed. Jesus desires nothing more than for you to be with him in heaven forever. That is always, 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 always the starting point of our faith, right? But we also realize that these are other realities that Jesus himself speaks about. You know, Jesus actually spoke more in his public life preaching that's recorded about hell than heaven. And we've inverted it in our society a lot that Jesus says the way to destruction is broad. The way to heaven is narrow because he is the way. In our society today, they've said, well, I mean, 
unless you do something really catastrophic, how, how could a loving God actually have somebody go to hell? Right? Because a loving God doesn't make you love him. A loving God invites you to love him. And so never fall into that complacency of saying like, well, you know, I'm no Hitler. Well, okay, congratulations, you're no Hitler. You're still a jerk, right? There's no jerks in heaven, right? That's what St. Paul says. St. Paul says, hey, listen, if you're falling into sorcery, idolatry, fornication, rivalries, jealousy, he says, none of that can you take to heaven. None of that can help you get to heaven. So give it up. Give it up. He says, start to live by the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, mildness, chastity, self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit. Again, so there's no law because they're fruits of heaven, the fruits of right relationship. So when we talk about purgatory and purgation, again, it's a way that God's love comes and helps to prepare us to be in right relationship. So one of the questions people ask, Father, how long are people in purgatory? How long am I going to be in purgatory? I'm going to be there a long time, I think. 1.5 billion years will be like yesterday come and gone. Right? Here's the deal. Here's a, a, an image that I use. Think of purgatory like a hospital. People go to hospitals for all sorts of different ailments, right? Sometimes the medicine hurts, but you know that you're getting better. Some people go to hospitals because they have a bad cold, and some people go to hospitals because they have cancer. Purgatory is a hospital that everybody graduates from and gets well, but it takes longer to get cancer out of the soul than it does a cold. And so when we talk about, well, do different sins have different times of purgation? In the same way that different illnesses take different time to overcome, we would say, sure. But once you enter into eternity, if you're asking, like, well, what is seven days? Is it seven days? Is it like eight days? Sister, you are in eternity at that point. If you are looking at your watch, you got bigger problems. Right? The church helps us try to understand these things by telling us, of course, there's a gradation. So, again, if I, you know, had a, a habit of lying that that would take a certain amount of time for God to purge, which might be different if I had a habit of slaughtering people. It might take a little bit longer time, right? So when we talk about time and purgatory, what we're talking about actually is really just the depth and the length of God's love and patience for us. So here it is. Purgatory is the final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. This teaching is also based on the practice of prayer for the dead, purgatory, already mentioned in sacred scripture. And this is uh, the big scripture passage that the church points to. Therefore, Judas Maccabeus made atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from their sin. So if you look at uh, the book of 2 Maccabees, uh, here's the, the Cliff Notes version of the story. Judas Maccabeus and his uh, band of merry men are going around, and they're fighting against the Greeks who have come across the Holy Land. They have destroyed the temple. They slaughtered a pig on the high altar just to kind of, you know, show their dominance over the Jewish people. So a revolution begins, and Judas Maccabeus and 
his band go out into battle, and they see that many men were killed on the battlefield, but all of those that died had a pagan amulet around their neck. And so Judah says, let us go and offer sacrifice for them now, that even after death, their sins may be forgiven. So you'd say, wow, that's, that's pretty amazing. Now, Father, if that's in Scripture, how come our Protestant brothers and sisters don't believe it? Does anybody know the answer to that? Ooh. They don't have Maccabees. Why don't, why don't they have Maccabees? They don't like it. <laughs> I, just don't, I just don't like it. Too troubling for Martin Luther's theology? That's a simplified good answer. Yes. So they took the Diet Coke of the Old Testament over Coke Zero. No, I'm kidding. Right, right. So you're very good. So there are seven books of the Old Testament that were written in Greek and not Hebrew. The church refers to them as deuterocanonical, meaning added to the canon, added to the list later. Martin Luther, when he was on his little kick about sola scriptura, said, well, look, uh, seven of these things are not like the other. So, right, so he said, Why are they? well, these are written in Greek. The rest is written in Hebrew. Let's get rid of all the Greek texts and we'll move them to the back. We'll make them an appendix or something. But we're not going to say they're actually inspired because they're written in Hebrew. And because they're not part of the Hebrew Scriptures that our Protestant brothers and sisters use, they don't have them as part of their canon. Does that make sense? So if you say, well, look at, look at Maccabees, they'll say, like, I don't have Maccabees. And you say, well, that's because Martin Luther chose the Diet Coke of Scripture when he was bouncing around, right? Real quick, okay, because we brought it up. Uh, so that's not a dig against our Protestant brothers and sisters. Um, what caused the Protestant Reformation? Corruption in the church? That's nothing new there. What? Okay, so she said she, they got all riled up because the church wasn't living as it ought to, and so instead of trying to fix it, they said, we're just going to start over. We're going to start something new. They thought that paying for salvation was against Scripture, and in that regard, they would be correct. You can't, you can't buy salvation, right? Give your hand up there. Yep. 95 theses, okay. Who else? Who's talking? They were selling indulgences. All right, so there we go. So here's what I actually think caused the Protestant Reformation. It was rats. You think I'm kidding. Here we go. <laughs> Buckle up. So here's what happened. The bubonic plague swept across Europe. And when the bubonic plague swept across Europe, it eliminated, I think, more than 50% of everybody that was alive at the time. 
including good, holy, pious priests that go and visit all of you when you get sick. So priests would go, and they would be coughed on, and then guess what? Now I have the plague, right? And then I die, and then my buddy dies, and then all the, guy, all the priests who live in my rectory die, and then there's no Mass on Sunday. And then all of a sudden, what you have is a crisis of clergy in Europe. And there were no seminaries at the time either. So you learned how to be a priest by just following a priest around like any other guild at the time. So you have a whole generation, it comes about, that never were taught theology well, didn't study at a seminary, and are basically just celebrating the sacraments to the best of their ability. And they're doing it poorly. This is what Martin Luther observes. These guys are just rattling off masses without even knowing Latin. They don't even know the, the language. They don't even know what they're saying. They're just kind of going through the motions. And at the same time, we had a little thing that was called the Crusades that were kind of going on over centuries and centuries. And what happened was this. If you wanted to say, like, well, I'm going to go on crusade for the church, and you die on your way, the church would say, well, there's merit to that. You are a soldier for Christ, and so there must be an indulgence, which means a sweetening, just like we have like an indulgent dessert. I think it's churros tonight. We have an indulgence that, that comes to us. And so the church says, well, sure. If somebody that dies, you know, trying to give witness to the faith, dies actually on crusade, that there must be some merit towards that person that's a remission of sin. But now you say, but wait a second, I have a bum leg and I can't walk to Jerusalem. Can I sponsor a crusader? Sure. Is there merit to that? The church says, uh, sure. And all of a sudden you see the slippery slope of, oh, so I'm sponsoring three crusaders. I can sit here. I'm getting grace. I'm getting merit. And I've just bought an indulgence. And it's never been a teaching of the church that that was a, a possibility. So Martin Luther comes along and he says, we need to reform the church. We need better clergy. We need better educated clergy. Sound kind of familiar to today's day and age? We need better formed clergy. And he was right. But his theology led him to a point where he denied the church's authority. And that's where he crossed the line. And that's where the differences become, right, or came into uh, being. But you have to remember that all of our Protestant brothers and sisters are all, they really are the Diet Coke of Catholicism, right? Uh, they are 85% Catholic. I tell my friends that all the time. They say, like, I'm Presbyterian. I said, oh, that's great. You're 90% Catholic. You know, like, 10% to go. Here you go. All right. All right, hell. Let's not go there. All right. So hell, so what is hell? We cannot be united with God unless we freely choose to love him, but we cannot love God if we sin gravely against him, against our neighbor and against ourselves. Then we have to remember that hell is the free choice not to live or to love God. God loves you enough to give you the ability not to love him back. That is your choice. So an imperfect analogy that I use is this. I use this with uh, grade school students. Say, um, let's say you're going to marry me. It's not going to happen, ladies. Sorry. No. So, okay. And I say, the, the great news is this. I have vacation homes all around the world. I have a yacht. I have a, a private jet on every coast of the world. And I have all these things. And if you marry me and you abide with me, what is mine is yours. 
Good deal, right? But now let's say you decide you no longer want to live with me, that you find me too demanding. And so you say, I'm going to go on my own. Do you get to keep the benefits of the relationship? Our society says 50%. God says it's all or nothing. What is the first gift that God gave you? Life. What gift do you forfeit if you decide you don't want to live with God? Life. That he created you to be able to live with him forever in perfect harmony. When we sin and we reject God, we reject life itself. We actually become deformed in some way because we're attacking the divine image inside of us. And so I become a hungry, thirsty, angry, isolated, depressed, cold creature of some sort, right? Because I've denied God who is the source of all that is good. So God does not send anybody to hell. You've probably heard that before. God does not send anybody to hell. God acknowledges that some people have chosen not to live with him forever. And he acknowledges that choice. Jesus often speaks of Gehenna, the unquenchable fire reserved for those who to the end of their lives refuse to believe and to be converted. For both soul and body can be lost. Jesus solemnly proclaims that he will send his angels and they will gather all evildoers and throw them into the furnace of fire. And you will pronounce the condemnation, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. Jesus believes in hell, and so I think that we ought to believe in it as well. guy was known to preach the truth. All right, so let me answer some of the questions that kind of came up. One of the questions that came up, uh, and it came up uh, in another conference as well, uh, was this. What about people who are gay or transgender? Are they condemned to hell? What do you think the answer is? Is anybody condemned to hell? Exactly that God does not create any of us to be condemned. Now, I think one of the disservices that our society has done is this. When it comes to uh, the gender issues of our, uh, of our day and time now, when it comes to same-sex attraction, it has taken those topics and set them aside as if you and I, all of us, don't have a sexuality in need of redemption. I have a sexuality in need of redemption. You have a sexuality in need of redemption. We all have a sexuality in need of purification and redemption. All of us. It just looks different depending on what my struggle is. And so when it comes to our brothers and sisters to say, well, I have same-sex attraction, or I feel like I am transgender, that I was born in the wrong body, you know, whatever it is, whether it is biological whether it is genetic, whether it is societal, whatever the cause may or may not be, that does not make them radically different than me, who also stands here and says, well, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of screwed up too. Like, I, I need God's grace in my life. I need my heart to be purified. I need to be able to use all of my desires rightly and correctly. And so God does not create any of us to be condemned. 
God invites all of us, no matter what our struggle may or may not be, to be able to turn to him and to be able to allow his redemptive love to purify us and make us ready to live in perfect relationship. Does that make sense? Okay. Suicide. Some of that comes up. If somebody commits suicide, do they go to hell? Do you know that for certain? Neither do I. What the church says is this, that we realize that somebody that suffers from depression, somebody that has a serious mental illness, somebody that feels isolated or alone, they would say that their free will in some way has been compromised, hasn't it? That somebody can't think clearly if they feel like they've been abused, neglected, isolated, find themselves alone. You're not actually thinking completely clearly. And so the church says, we recognize that you're still culpable, but your culpability is a little bit limited in that regard. That God understands that and he knows that. Padre Pio one time was talking to a distraught uh, woman whose husband had jumped off of a bridge to commit suicide. And Padre Pio was a mystic, and so he was able to be able to read souls and kind of know things that most of us don't know. And so she came all distraught and said, oh, you know, I assume that my husband is in hell. Padre Pio said, oh, foolish woman, don't you know that he made an act of contrition between the bridge and the water? God's grace is greater than anything that we can comprehend, right? I am not the judge of heaven, hell, and purgatory. You are not the judge of heaven, hell, and purgatory. Jesus is. It's his place. It's his relationship. It's his life. It's his redemption. And so the church says we better take him at his word when it comes to these realities. But in the end, the church even says, look, we can look for evidence that somebody is in heaven, and then we call that person a saint, but the church has never in her history looked for evidence that anybody's in hell. We believe that Jesus says that it exists. He says that people go there. But the church always, always, always focuses on the positive, not the negation. Does that make sense? Last thing. Uh, this came up last time, and then I'll open it up for some questions as we have like two minutes left. Angels and demons. Angels and demons are real. Uh, they are spiritual beings. When you die, you do not become an angel. That drives me up a wall when people say that. It's like saying, well, when I die, I become a dolphin. No, you don't. <laughs> a dolphin is a completely different creature. Right? Angels are completely different spiritual creatures that God created. You and I are not angels. We are human beings. Good news is this. Jesus himself says that war broke out in heaven. And there was an eternal moment, a perfect moment of clarity when a third of the angels chose not to live and to serve God. And so they fell. That was the fall of the angels. Jesus says, I beheld Satan falling like a star from the sky. Here's the cool thing about it. Two-thirds of the angels are still standing. Which means, if you look at it in terms of a battle, quote-unquote, it's a two-to-one odds. All of you have a guardian angel that Jesus says intercedes for you before his throne to guard you and to guide you each and every day. 
There is an infinite divide, so there's a really, really bad, you can look it up, cheesy image one time that I saw on the internet of Jesus arm wrestling the devil. It is so bad, it's good. I got a coffee mug with that. Where are you today? Over the top, Jesus. Okay. There is an infinite divide between good and evil. In the same way that if you walk into a dark room and you flip on a light and the darkness scatters, that is the power of God's grace in our lives. Even Therese of Lisieux, she says, demons are funny things. They're scared of holy water. (laughs) That God is the creator and even the devil and all of his wickedness and vileness and whatever, putridness, is a fallen creature who cannot for a moment, approach the Creator. God, in fact, didn't even bother himself with it so much that he just delegated it to Michael. Michael, get rid of this guy. I'm on it, boss. Out you go, right? That is the great divide. That's the good news, right? Um, that God loves us so much. Somebody once asked, uh, once somebody is in hell, can, is the devil ever going to be redeemed? No. Are demons ever going to be redeemed? No. Why? Because they don't have a polluted intellect like you and I. They have a pure intellect. It was a once and forever question that they answered. Does that make sense? All right. We have two minutes for like a question. Something that's going to, yeah. What is the difference between the experience of purgatory uh, when you are there and experience of purgatory here on earth? So if you fast and pray, you are purging your desires. You are trying to make sure that your desires are rightly ordered here on earth, right? But you are still in the process of redemption. So you still have, like you and I both, uh, we're still being pulled in all these different directions. Once you're in purgatory, you are on your way. There's no more any doubt about your salvation, actually. It's just allowing God's love to do its job over time at that point, right? So the fire of purgatory is different because it's medicinal versus the fires of hell, which torment the soul because it means that I can never be comfortable. I'm, I'm never going to be at rest. Right? Does that make sense? So there's one in the upper bowl. I don't want to cheap seats up there. I don't want to deny you. Yep. Yes. Is it easy to go to purgatory? If you die without mortal sin on your soul, that's your bus stop, man. All right? There you go. And Yeah, you're in the shadow. You're wearing black on top of your green. Yep. What is the best way to pray for somebody in purgatory? One of the things that the church says is that you can actually go and offer up your mass for that person since Mass is the participation in the redemptive sacrifice of Jesus, you can have a Mass offered for that person. Or if you go to Mass, you can interiorly say, Jesus, I'm offering the graces of this Mass for this loved one of mine. Right? Yellow shirt. This guy. Sunglasses. Yep, you. Yep. Doesn't, yes. A chaste person 
A chaste person with same-sex attraction is going to go to heaven before an unchaste person that's heterosexual. It's about chastity, not, not desire. Can I talk a little bit more about the final judgment? All day long, baby. Here we go. All right, no. All right. <laughs> right. So Jesus himself says at the final judgment, here's what will happen. He says that we will see the skies opened up, that the Son of Man will return, that his angels, his army of angels will storm the earth, that will separate the lambs from the goats for all time. Creation will cease, and the resurrection of the dead will occur, meaning that all of the blessed that are already in heaven will get their actual glorified bodies back. So right now, the church professes that only Mary and Jesus actually have their glorified bodies in heaven. The rest of the saints have souls that are able to perceive the throne of God, but haven't yet participated in the completion of the new creation. That's what the final judgment will accomplish. Mm. Cremation. Okay, this would be our last question then. If you have more questions, you can ask me because you have to go eat. Cremation. So the church used to say, hey, don't go cremating uh, your body. Like, what, what the heck are you thinking, right? Now it says, boy, you know, coffins are expensive. Cremation's the way to go. Um, <laughs> sorry. So cremated remains. So the church says that all of us eventually will have a glorified body made of the same stuff, but not necessarily the exact same atoms that you have right now, okay? So obviously, like, we understand that your body decomposes, it goes into the earth, and it actually does become the grass that a lion eats or something like that. And then is a lion going to become you? I don't think so, right? The church says that you should not scatter your ashes, though, because there is a dignity to the body that you in a particular way have been created in the image of God, that animals have not, that plants are not. And so there's always a reverence and respect given to the human body. At the final judgment, at the resurrection of the dead, we will receive a glorified body. Will it be exactly the same like dust that will come back up? That's Jesus' deal, right? The church just says that we reverence the body. We don't spread mom and dad or grandma and grandpa around on mantle places or make jewelry out of one another. Like, we don't do that type of nonsense, right? It really is kind of nonsensical when we think about it. Now, the ironic part is this, and we'll end with this. This is kind of a fun thing. Uh, if you are holy and you die, and people start talking about how holy you are, eventually somebody's going to say, we ought to dig her up. Why? Because one of the signs sometimes of a saint is that they are incorruptible. Because of the holiness of their life, they actually haven't decayed. St. Clair of Assisi is one of the incorruptibles. woo -hoo. So if you are really holy, so then if we dig you up, and even if you have decayed a little bit, but all of a sudden people said, well, you know, I prayed to her, and then all of a sudden, like, my leg was dead, and now it's alive. We're like, wow, that's one. And if you get three miracles, we say, wow, she must be a saint. Let's dig her up for good. We're going to chop her up and spread her body around the world. Why? Because we're crazy. No, because... That goes back to, we don't, and we don't chop the entire body up. Usually the church takes like a femur bone or some other part of the body, and they chop it up into very small pieces. <laughs> Sounds like a horror film. And we put it in little canisters. <laughs> 
And, and that's all the time we got. No, I'm kidding. All right. So we call it a relic. A relic is uh, part of a saint's body that we send around the world and that we put them in the altars that we celebrate mass to remind us two things. One, that we are united to the saints. Two, if this saint can do it, you can do it. Same grace that they received in their life, you receive in your life. It comes actually from the tradition in the early church they had to celebrate mass in the catacombs on top of the tombs of the martyrs that were sacrificed, right, that were martyred for the faith. So the church carries that tradition today. Go home and ask your priest what saint is in our altar, and, you'll be able to, and he'll be able to answer that question for you. Last, last, last question, yeah. Yes. People that were assumed will not go to purgatory. So Mary did not go to purgatory, uh, and Jesus obviously was a, a straight shot. You know, because let's pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, we thank you for the gift of redemption that you have bestowed upon all of us. We ask you to help us to cooperate with the process of salvation. Help us to say yes to all that is good, true, and beautiful and to say no to all those things that are not of you. We pray for all of our loved ones that are deceased. Lord, that through our prayers for them and through your grace and mercy, that they may see you face to face and live forever. We ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. And Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Go, eat, be merry. Yeah.